0: Well, good evening everyone, it's lovely to be with you. I'm very grateful to George for passing up the opportunity of introducing me as a minister at large. Um, It would have been a cheap shot, brother. Uh, Can I just say it is such an honor for me to be part of this service to witness the baptism of Philip and Shannon. If you're here uh, because you're a friend or a family member of uh, either the Shannon family or Phillips family, I want you to know that you are most welcome and we hope uh, that you enjoy a time of fellowship with us after I finish speaking. I won't keep you very long. Baptism is a vivid visual aid, as George has explained. It's a dramatic picture of a spiritual reality. And that's important because sometimes the conversation Uh, about how to become a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian can sometimes feel a little abstract. Uh, Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. So for the next few minutes, I want to leave you with two pictures from the Bible that explain Christian salvation. They're both taken from the book of Exodus. I'm sure most of you know that the book of Exodus tells the story of how God rescues his people uh, from a life of slavery in Egypt. Some of you may be thinking that a story about ancient Egypt uh, isn't exactly relevant to our lives here in the 21st century. But let's think for a moment about the land of Egypt in the Bible and what it represents. The pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, is uh, represented consistently uh, to us as a materialist. He thought life was about accumulating wealth. Slaves were just resources. At the end of the day, life was about work and sleep, and work. He wouldn't allow any space in his life or anyone else's life for the worship of God. So Egypt represents the materialists' worldview. This world is all there is. We're just part of a closed physical system. Now, you might be puzzled by that analysis. Didn't the Egyptians have lots of gods? I mean, what about that dog-headed god Anubis? Well, yes, the Egyptians did have lots of gods, but they were all nature gods. They were personifications of the force of nature. They had no concept of a creator God who was outside the system. It isn't all that surprising that the Egyptians adopted that worldview because they had the Nile River. All the other lands in the ancient Near East had to depend on rain from heaven. But the Egyptians had the Nile, so who needed to pray for rain? So Egypt represents what the New Testament calls worldliness. It's that attitude which says, this world is all there is. Now that idea, I don't need to tell you, Is very, very modern. The sociologist Peter Berger famously said that we live in a world with no windows. It's a closed system. No supernatural. No God. Just atoms. So that's the context. Let's now think about the first picture of salvation found in this ancient book. It's an event called the Passover. I want to read some verses from Exodus chapter 12. God is speaking to Moses and he says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The story of the Passover begins when Moses is given this solemn message that the firstborn son in every household will be struck down by the avenging angel on Passover night. Everyone was under that judgment both Israelite and Egyptian. But God provided a way for people to shelter from his wrath. A lamb had to be slaughtered by each household, and his blood was painted on the top of the doorframe and on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side. And then, for all of that terrible night, those inside the house sheltered under the blood of the lamb. We need to remember that any Egyptian who had accepted the evidence Moses had shown them could have converted to faith in the God of Israel and have availed themselves of God's salvation plan, and I'm sure many of them did. Now, there's a curious detail in the story which we find in the parallel accounts. God, of course, takes full responsibility for that judgment, but it's the avenging angel who brings death on the firstborn. God's own role is to stretch himself out over every household that had blood painted on the store for him. Isaiah describes God a bit like a hovering bird, um, stretching himself out in a protective way to shield the people from the aven- avenging angel. And in the morning, of course, when the relieved Israelites opened the door and stepped outside, they would have examined the bloodstains. They would have looked as if their household had been protected by a crucified man. So this first picture of salvation teaches us that we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Now, the notion of a wrathful God is deeply unpopular today. It's not just non-Christians who recoil from that thought. I'm sure everyone in the room has has heard of or probably sung that modern Christian anthem called In Christ Alone. It was written by Short Townend and Keith Getty. And one of the main Protestant denominations in the United States wanted to include that hymn in their new hymn book. But there was one line they didn't like. It comes in the third verse. Third verse says, This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin in him was led here in the death of Christ I live. And the offending line was the one that said, The wrath of God was satisfied. The editors of the new hymn wrote to the Gettys and asked them if they could change that line to the love of God was magnified. Now that story really resonates with the spirit of the age. We much prefer to talk about love than to talk about justice and punishing sin. Our TV screens are filled with people waving placards saying, love, not hate. We've almost got to the point where the idea of punishing sin is a bit like a hate crime. So how do we go about defending the rationality of divine punishment? I'm going to make two defenses here. First, let me remind you of the most annoying machine in the universe. It is actually the photocopier. In our church office, it seems to sense my presence, jam every print run I start, and sometimes I shouldn't admit this, but I become so frustrated with a stupid machine that I'm tempted to give it a good kick. Now the idea of punishing a machine is ridiculous, isn't it? Well, if you believe that you're just a machine, and I come along and talk about God punishing you, you would find the gospel ridiculous. What's the point of punishing a collection of atoms? So the gospel today must hold out this lovely, ennobling truth. The truth that human beings are not just material stuff. We are magnificent moral, rational, and spiritual beings. C.S. Lewis argued that the doctrine of divine punishment is actually a real complement to humanity. God takes us seriously as morally responsible beings. So that's my first defense. Here's the second one. How God reacts to sin tells us a great deal about his character. Let's just imagine for a moment a God who who might say he could face sin and say, well, it doesn't really matter. Imagine he could shrug his shoulders, issue some sort of unprincipled pardon to sinners. What sort of a God would he be? A God like that would lose the respect and reverence of every moral being in the universe. Let us imagine for a moment, it is a horrific thought, but imagine you have a 16-year-old brother who has taken up golf. His parents are pleased that something, anything, uh, has the power to remove his smartphone from the end of his nose. But they warn him that he must not practice his golf inside the house, particularly in the room where they entertain visitors. In that room, they keep an old piece of crystal. It's a beautiful and precious thing, valuable uh, in the history of your family. And, well, it has been raining all week, and you know exactly where my story is going. Your 16-year-old sibling chooses to forget all the parental warnings, And soon there is a terrible sound of a piece of crystal being impacted by a beautifully struck golf ball. Now, if you watched your parent run into the room and say, ah, poor boy, it doesn't really matter. It was only an old piece of glass, meant nothing to us. You would be forced to conclude that they didn't value the crystal at all. If they did value it, then what happened really did matter. They might forgive your 16-year-old brother. They might even pay for the thing to be repaired. But the senseless disobedience would be a fact that could not be ignored. Now let's take a much darker scenario. Imagine for a moment that years from now you've started a family and you have the misfortune to have me as a neighbor. And I am a complete drunk. I habitually drink and drive. Now imagine that I got drunk one evening, got into my car, and killed your five-year-old daughter on the way home. How would you feel if God waved an airy hand and said, well, that was most unfortunate? but I'm a forgiving sort of person. So let's all just try to move on. A God like that would be saying that the girl's life had no value. Our guilt before God is real because the things destroyed by our sin are real and valuable. The idea that God can somehow ignore the fact of sin and disobedience in His universe is absurd. If God looked down at all the pain and hurt and misery caused by sin and said to Himself, oh well, it doesn't matter, he would be saying that his entire universe was of no value. And in so doing, he would cease to be God. So the execution of justice can't be avoided for two reasons. First, God treats us as morally responsible agents, not dumb machines. And second, if God didn't execute justice, he would be saying that nothing in his universe had any real value. The picture of the Passover lamb brings to us to the very heart of the gospel. Jesus is described... As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason Christians make so much of the cross of Christ is they claim that Jesus bore God's wrath in our place. Now, when I was a child, back in the days of steam engines, I used to be really confused about how the cross worked. I had a wrong view of that scene in my head. Because as a child, I thought of Jesus as a sort of independent third party. Instead of punishing me, God punished Jesus. But deep down, even as a child, that idea made no sense to me. What possible good could come from punishing a third party? It made no sense. But remember, Christ is God the Son. So there are only two parties at the cross. You and God. There is no third party. At the cross, we see God take the punishment for our sin on himself. We are watching the self-substitution of God. And suddenly, when you think about it like that, the moral beauty of the scene becomes clear. When someone sacrifices themselves for another person, we are seeing the deepest form of love. The lover gives himself for the beloved. So the Passover is a picture of how we are protected from the wrath of God. We are shielded from the penalty of sin by the blood of the Lamb. Let's now turn uh, to the second picture of salvation from Exodus. We're going to read some verses from chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. The context here is that Pharaoh has eventually allowed the children of Israel to leave their life of slavery in Egypt, but then, once again, he changes his mind, and he sends his armies after them, so the poor Israelites find themselves trapped between the devil and the deep red sea. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And now verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, the text tells us that God deliberately led his people into what looked like a trap. Why did he do that? Well, remember that the Israelites were terrified of Pharaoh and his armies. They still had what we might call a slave mindset. So as soon as the Israelites saw the dust clouds thrown up by Pharaoh's chariots, they went into a blind panic. But then comes the miraculous escape. The Israelites are amazed to see a path through the sea has opened up, and they make a decision to trust Moses and follow him through it, with great walls of water on either side. And Pharaoh is so enraged that he, he follows them, but the wheels of his chariots get clogged up, and then the waters close over their heads, and the entire army is drowned. The Israelites watch the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the beach, and they sing and dance in delight. The power of Pharaoh had been broken. When somebody becomes a Christian, it isn't enough that the penalty of sin is paid. The power of sin has to be broken. And that is Paul's big argument in the book of Romans. In chapters 1 to 5, he explains how we can be saved from the wrath of God, from the penalty of sin. That's illustrated by our first picture. And then in chapter 6 through 8, he explains we are saved from the wreckage of sin, from the power of sin over our lives. And every time you read in Romans 6 that Sin shall not hold you down. Sin shall not be your master. For you are not under law, but under grace. I want you to think of Moses and Miriam banging their tambourines on the shores of the Red Sea. So my point is this. If you want to understand Christian salvation, put these two pictures side by side. Place the story of the Passover and the story of the crossing of the Red Sea together in your mind in order to get a vivid picture of what salvation actually means. The Passover deals with our justification. The Red Sea incident explains our sanctification. We need both the penalty and the power of sin to be dealt with. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. We need to be saved from the wreckage of sin. As I said at the start, sometimes the doctrines of the New Testament can seem a little bit abstract, all those big, long, complicated words. One of the reasons we have the Old Testament is that it enriches our imaginations. It gives us the thought forms. Uh, uh, these vivid word pictures that allow us to grasp New Testament concepts. So think of yourself, Christian, sheltering behind the blood of the Lamb as the avenging angel passes by. Or use your imagination to trust Moses as the captain of your salvation and walk nervously between those walls of water. And then look back and see the forces that had enslaved you being swept away. No longer will they have hold over you. But perhaps tonight... You have never experienced salvation like that well you can know the reality that Philip and Shannon have testified to here tonight like them you can shelter under the blood of the lamb you can stand at the foot of the cross and come to it and there find forgiveness and cleansing and peace with God And it allows God, secondly, to break the power of sin in your life. So, as George quoted from Romans, you can count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And that offer is open for you tonight. If you'd like to talk to me about it afterwards, I'll be somewhere around the front. Uh, But let's just close in a word of prayer, and then we will have supper. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this happy and significant moment in the lives of Philip and Shannon. We pray your blessing upon them, that you would guard them, develop them as sons and daughters of the Most High. Pray that you would help them to be used to stand for Christ in a culture that has turned its back on you. Pray for their families and their friends. Help them to support them as they begin this journey of faith. But Father, we're also conscious that perhaps not everyone in the room has experienced that private transaction which occurred in the lives of Philip and Shannon years ago. And so we pray that you would give them the intellectual honesty to ask whether or not they are forgiven, whether or not they have peace with you. And instead of trying to base hope on some set of works or trying to do the best they can, that they would throw themselves on your mercy, shelter under the blood of the Lamb, receive the free gift of salvation, and thereby know hope and healing and forgiveness. So we pray your blessing on us. Bless our fellowship as we uh, enjoy this food together. In Jesus' name, amen.